G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse, and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. G'day and welcome to Who Killed Leanne Holland. This is Chapter 20, Facts Matter. G'day, Graham. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Jamie. And you? I'm doing well, mate. We're gearing up for Christmas, so it's exciting times. It gets busy, but, you know, who doesn't love the summer and the sand and a few Christmas bevies? Exactly. Let's get straight into it. So this is the final episode of Who Killed Leanne Holland. And uh, before we start, Graham and I did want to thank each and every one of our listeners for being on board for this journey. So thank you to you for making this possible. Yes, thank you. We certainly couldn't do it without the listeners. And with over a million downloads, Jamie, I'm over the moon. Yeah, that's outstanding, isn't it? So yeah, thank you for those who listened. And thank you for those who reviewed. It means a lot to us. It does. All right, so some clarifications from uh, the last episode, the shower curtain. It was inferred by the Queensland police. The body was wrapped in the old pink shower curtain, which had been replaced some weeks earlier. In the review, the shower curtain is mentioned some 120 times, some in relation to the previous curtain and some in relation to the alleged blood spots on the new shower curtain. The review concluded that the old pink shower curtain was not retained by police and not disposed of and not located. In fact, one of the job logs was specifically related to that shower curtain. Melissa Holland was interviewed and confirmed it was thrown out five weeks prior. The new shower curtain was purchased two to three weeks later. Now, that is two weeks before Leanne Holland's murder. The review certainly made issue of the 60 invisible spots on the curtain, particularly as it was only two weeks old. Only one was shown to be Leanne Holland's blood. The rest may not have even been blood. That's correct, Jamie. There's one spot of Leanne Holland's blood on that shower curtain. The rest may or may not have been blood, but suddenly we've got the murder occurring in the bathroom. Yes, well, you know, we could talk about that all night, couldn't we? We could. After all, these spots were invisible to the eye, which is of itself a big concern. When considered in its totality, and the fact that only minimum blood was found in the bathroom, 
none under the tiles and none in the S-bends, we believe it is of no evidentiary value. If there was other supporting evidence, possibly, but what is the other supporting evidence? Yes, Jamie, I agree with all that. I need to talk about the photograph of the contents of the boot. In the last episode, we talked about the photograph of the contents of the boot, and there was discussion about whether the photo was taken on the Wednesday or the Thursday, and we concluded it was likely taken on the Wednesday at the Holland House. Phil messaged me. He's a retired Queensland police officer of 34 years, of which 15 were as a detective. Phil has messaged me before, and I thank him for his interest in the case. We have never met. I have previously said I'm not worried whether someone believes Graham Stafford is innocent or guilty. I just try to have people engaged in the subject, which may force change in the future. Phil had this to say. He believed the photograph was taken at the VEA, the Vehicle Examination Area. It's in police headquarters. It's the roller door you see on the left before the car park entrance. Yes, all very sus about the maggot. I've never known any soco, scientific officer or detective that would not photograph something in situ and something as small and vital as a maggot. No way would you shut the boot and leave it there. You may never find it again. I concur heartily with Phil's comments. I also accept Phil's comments and most likely the photograph was taken on the Thursday at police headquarters. I apologise for misleading listeners and I'm very glad the matter now appears settled. As I said, I've looked at that photograph for 30 years, picked it up, put it down. I've never previously mentioned it because I wasn't sure. But whilst the clarification that the photograph was taken on the Thursday provides one answer, it raises two questions, which Phil nominated as well. The photographer was obviously contacted and requested to be present on the Thursday. He took a photograph of the contents of the boot spread out on the concrete. Who knows, he may even have taken more photographs of the contents of the boot. Most likely did. So why not take a photograph of the maggot before, during and after its arrest and seizure? We have a ridiculous situation that not only did the photographer and videographer miss an extremely important and significant opportunity to capture evidence on the Wednesday, but the same ludicrous situation was replicated on Thursday. The photographer who took the photographs on the Wednesday was interviewed by the review team. He told them he was never informed about the existence of the maggot. There was a lot of finger-pointing as to who was ultimately responsible for the failure to take the photograph of the maggot. With the photographer blaming the scientific officer, and the Socko blaming the photographer. The identity of the Thursday photographer is not known. I personally seriously question the photographer was ever informed of the existence of the maggot on the Thursday or the Wednesday. I side with the photographer. Yet in the video, in the presence of the videographer, the Socko is pointing out things to the cameraman but at no point does he say, oh, there was a maggot here a minute ago, let's see if we can find it. Which raises a question, 
why didn't the review report comment on the failure to take a photographic record of the maggot on the Thursday? But let's run with the story that the maggot always existed. Move along, nothing to see here. Can I say the review team had to avoid the domino effect at all costs? You mentioned the CCTV and the missing hammer in the last episode, Jamie. The CCTV was not mentioned in the review, so I cannot comment on it, but it was noted the CCTV footage was taken possession of from the car wash. What happened to it? The review confirmed that Graham Stafford put his car through the car wash. And as we have said in the podcast, despite the prosecutor accusing Graham Stafford of lying when he said he assumed the police had the hammer and that the police did not have the hammer, you may be surprised, or not, to learn that I read in the police review they found the hammer in the exhibits. If some listeners do not understand the significance of that, I will say this. The murder weapon was supposedly a hammer. Graham Stafford's hammer had blood on it, according to the interview detectives had with him. That interview went to the jury. The hammer went missing. It would have been very inconvenient for the Crown case to then produce the hammer at trial that had no blood on it. Not even invisible blood, as with the shower curtain. A hammer he used to repeatedly bash Leanne Holland, yet he was skilful enough to wipe all trace of blood from it. Jamie, in the last episode, I mentioned the Tafomini evidence that concluded death occurred somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. That was incorrect. I apologise. That was what was written in the review report. We need to clarify two comments from the last episode. The results from those exhibits that have been forensically tested are profound. The evidence obtained is, in many ways, extremely strong. The following points can be categorically proven. 1. Leanne Holland commenced, as she wished, to bleach her hair on Monday the 23rd of the 9th, 1991. The evidence infers that she was partway into that process before she was fatally assaulted. 2. The Tafomini evidence suggests that Leanne Holland had been deceased for a period of between 24 to 72 hours prior to discovery. That first point is profoundly incorrect. The QPS cannot categorically prove that peroxide was put on her hair the day she died. To suggest that is patently ridiculous. As we commented on the peroxide issue last episode, we do not intend to revisit it. On the second point, she had been deceased for a period of between 24 to 72 hours categorically proven. But this is what the scientist actually wrote. I estimate the time since death to be in excess of 24 hours and possibly up to 72 hours. What was the motive of the author to falsify that scientific finding, apart from misleading anyone reading the findings in the report, I mean? We are finding repeated examples of where the review team manipulated the evidence to suit their narrative.
It is obvious why the Queensland Police never wanted this report to be made public. It would have been far better to just say, we reinvestigated and we were always right. I'm beginning to think it was a real blessing the report was leaked, sold or whatever to Channel 7 to show the report up for what it is. Unbelievable. You couldn't make this shit up. Oh, I agree, mate. That is just unbelievable. That is a true work of fiction right there. Oh, and Graham, by the way, before I forget, a book turned up for me in the mail, unannounced. Uh, it was a book by Greg Carey, An Absence of Certainty. I know you told me about it and how much you enjoyed it, and I'm wondering, did that come from you? Yes, you got it. Well, thank you, mate. I do love to read, and I'm very much looking forward to reading that over the next few weeks. Jamie, I thought it would be an excellent Christmas present for you, mate. You've mentioned to me a few times about how you love to read, and I can guarantee you will enjoy this book, mate. I'm glad all my hinting paid off. I get a Christmas present. <laughs> that means I've got to get you something. <laughs> As this was the last episode, Jamie, I decided it would be a perfect Christmas present for you, mate. Honestly, I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. It's an excellent read. And please, pass it on to your mum and dad. They will love it also. I've actually asked all four of our children to read it. My wife and sister both loved it. So it's not just directed to men. It's the kind of book everyone will take a special memory from. You know, you don't have to know Greg Carey to enjoy it, I promise. So if anyone's interested in reading Greg's book or buying it as a Christmas gift, you can purchase it at gregcarey.com. That's G-R-E-G-C-A-R-Y.com, not C-A-R-E-Y as is usual spelling. And I can guarantee it'll be $30 well spent. And by the way, I'm sure you won't be interested in this, Jamie, but talking to Greg last week, he's going back to 4BC for a month over Christmas, starting 19 December. And many people in Queensland would remember Greg when he was with 4BC and were big fans of his. If you want to tune in, 19 December, for our interstate and overseas listeners, you'll find Greg on Brisbane Radio 4BC. I'll have to tell my parents that because uh, they both loved listening to Greg for many years. So... Yeah, they're a big fan. I'll have to let them know. Speaking of books, Graham, have you done anything more with your new book, the new Leanne Holland book you're going to revise? Still writing it, mate. Joe Crowley and I, we're ploughing through it. It's a big task, but we're getting there. Okay, so us, the listeners who are keen to read it, when and where can we get our hands on it? Good question. Have you got a publisher yet? Haven't got a publisher, haven't even got a name. The working title is The Leanne Holland Murder, A Forensic Analysis. Joe being a barrister and me being an investigator, we're attacking it from a sort of completely different angle. We're looking at the evidence from an investigative viewpoint. We're looking at the evidence from a, from a legal viewpoint. We estimate we'll finish writing by maybe January or February. I'm not so keen to have a mainstream publisher anymore after the last one. Joe is keen to go with a mainstream publisher. I've left that in his court, but he's agreed if he can't get a mainstream, we'll self-publish. That sounds good, mate. And how about anyone who's interested, keep an eye on the Facebook page because we will put a link up 
when Graham's book does come to fruition. Definitely a special deal for the listeners, Jamie. And I'll, I'll probably drop a quick, short chapter on the Holland podcast page. Sounds good. To the effect that we've finished the book and published it. But on that note, if anyone is a publisher or has their feet in any publishing ponds, let us know via the Facebook or send us an email. That'd be good. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Yeah, that'd be good if there's any publishers out there. All right, so maybe on to some feedback. This is from Caitlin, and she is talking about the hair dye peroxide debacle discussed in the last chapter. This is what she had to say. My query was in relation to her hair being in the process of being bleached. If she was bleaching her hair and stopped the process before washing it off, her hair would have been burnt and probably start to break and fall out. Anyone who has left hair bleach on too long will attest that your hair simply melts and breaks away and most certainly burns your scalp. Being killed before having the bleach washed out would have most certainly burnt Leanne's scalp and damaged her hair. Also, I may have missed it, but I don't recall much being said about the bleach kit. There are a few steps in the process. You require mixing bowls and gloves, not to mention the bottle of bleach and the associated other bits that come with a kit. Was that recovered? It's just not plausible. If a tussle or fight broke out mid-bleach, clothes would have evidence of bleach on them. I've been very careful when bleaching my hair and still manage to ruin clothes with spots of bleach. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like I don't have much experience in this field, but I do see my wife um, who's a hairdresser, I see her working and she's doing this stuff every day, all day. It is hard to believe that bleach doesn't get anywhere because I see her clothes, they're stained. It does get messy, it gets on your clothes, your hands. Uh, you know, you wear gloves and all the little mixing bowls and there's stuff everywhere. And so, yeah, I, I, I do agree with Caitlin. How could you, if a fight did happen, how could you keep that clean and isolated I just don't understand and burning the hair burning the scalp I just yeah I don't know but certainly as far as um, the bleach going everywhere your wife's a hairdresser and she still has problems with it oh I hear it all the time when she takes something out of the, the washing machine that's got a big nasty stain on it I also understand that using peroxide it's not something that you do over five or ten minutes it's quite a lengthy process Absolutely it is. Yeah, these clients that Renee does, my wife does, take hours yeah. by the time they – depends on how much they have done. Obviously, there's a lot of variables with everything. Yeah, that's my experience. Yeah, That's interesting, Jamie, and it reinforces everything that I've always thought. You won't believe it. Every time I open the police review, I find something else. It reminds me of when I was investigating the actual case. I could never get to the end of it. There was always something else popping up. I'm not a big fan of eyewitnesses unless their evidence is supported in some material way. The overall evidence is usually accurate, but the devil is in the detail. Corroborated is the correct terminology. Many, many factors come into play when a person witnesses something that later goes to court. Take the woman who saw Graham Stafford's car in the bush at the body dump site. She was a lovely woman, but terribly unreliable. She just wanted to help. She could be persuaded to agree with whatever you put to her. She would simply say anything to help. And it didn't matter which side you were on. 
if you asked for her help, she would give it. You may recall she was a witness the trial judge instructed the jury to ignore her evidence. Trauma and stress also have a big impact on witnesses and their recall. Have you ever been in an accident? Even injured, perhaps? I guarantee it coloured your memory of the incident. It is well documented how stress and trauma impacts and influences a witness. Witnesses who are stressed or traumatised from an incident consistently have a poorer memory. If it is a violent incident, then it gets even murkier. I'm also not a big fan of circumstantial evidence. This case is a classic example of why I'm not a fan. This is one definition of circumstantial, pointing indirectly towards someone's guilt, but not conclusively proving it. And when considering circumstantial evidence, do you look at each circumstance individually, or do you look at them in their totality? It depends on who you ask. Some say you look at each point and judge it on its merit. Others say you should take a global view and look at the points together. I believe you need to look at the evidence piece by piece and then look at the global picture of what evidence remains. I have to say I'm also not a big fan of forensic evidence unless it is uncontested. I'll give you an example. Too often, the Crown produce an expert forensic witness who gives persuasive evidence of a forensic outcome favourable to the Crown. The defence then produce their own expert forensic witness who also gives persuasive evidence of an alternative outcome favourable to the defence. They are both forensic experts. They possibly know each other, may have even worked with each other. You know yourself. Doctors and specialists will disagree on the treatment of an injury or illness. Who do you believe? It probably comes down to bedside manner or the one who sounds more convincing. And then you have the situation where the Crown called two expert witnesses, so the defence called two witnesses. Meanwhile, we have to hope the jury can do their job. And what happens when you have four scientists? One for the Crown saying one thing, the other three saying exactly the opposite, as happened in this murder investigation. Who do you believe then? Sorry, Jamie. The maggot raises its head again. Oh, the elusive, mystical, magic maggot. (laughs) Back again. Back again. That is an interesting aspect of this case. The police had to have the maggot continue its existence. To acknowledge the maggot never existed, or even to ignore it completely, was simply too difficult, and the domino effect could possibly be catastrophic so plausible deniability was needed. You have the ridiculous situation where the police scientific officer said there was a live maggot in the boot on the Wednesday and that 24 hours later it was still there and it was still alive. Three scientists disputed that claim. For obvious reasons, the police couldn't get two other scientists to back up their own claim. So how do you keep the maggot in play? To refresh your memory, the Crown called two witnesses to say that Graham Stafford's car was at the dump site on the Thursday, one at 6.20am and one at 8.45am. 
and the lady at 8.45am was the lovely witness mentioned above. But the other evidence was that Graeme Stafford arrived home from work around 7.45am that Wednesday morning and stayed there. And at some short time after that, they all went to the Goodner Police Station and stayed there all day and most of the night. I read in the report the review team considered that most likely Graeme Stafford dumped the body at 6.20am, at which time he was sighted at the disposal site and then returned to the body at 8.45am. And yes, offenders have been known to return to the dead body. We've all heard that before. But it was at this time that the maggot got into the boot. The review wrote this. It could give rise to the possibility that the maggot was inadvertently transferred into the boot of the Gemini that morning. And their research showed that it was then possible for a maggot to still be alive at about 12 midday Thursday. Seems legit. The original scenario, the maggot had been in the boot since Monday afternoon had been abandoned. For the very obvious reasons as reported by the three scientists. In this way, the maggot was still in play and a witness saw a red car similar to Graham Stafford's travelling from Redbank Plains towards Goodna. In all likelihood, that was Graham Stafford's car. The review wrote this. Whether or not there was sufficient time for Graham Stafford to have attended the Redbank Plains Road crime scene between 8.30 and 8.45am is questionable. However, the description of the features of the car seen by a witness does not rule it out of the realms of possibility. Seriously? Did they even think this theory through? He did not leave his home that morning. If he was missing for at least 30 minutes, he would have been noticed, right? That female witness was incredibly unreliable. There was eight other sightings that week at the body disposal dump site. And what about the lack of smell on the boot of Graham Stafford's car? That's definitely something to think about. Would a jury be persuaded by that evidence? Would the DPP even prosecute based on those claims? That's right, Jamie. Just on that matter of the witnesses who saw cars there at the body disposal dump site that week, there were at least eight other sightings, yet Mm. they just ignore them. And on the smell, I'm not sure if we ever mentioned this, but it's worthy of comment. The Socko was asked if he detected a smell from the boot when he first opened Graham Stafford's boot on the Wednesday. A dead body weighing 40 kilos had been in the hot boot for over two days and he said there was no smell. I say the smell would have you gagging when you open that boot. The forensic pathologist said she would not expect the body of a young girl to smell as badly as an adult. Seriously? Yeah, it's definitely not my experience. I mean, only in my short few years of being a police officer, I attended you know, quite a few deaths and you can't get rid of that smell. It just stays with you and it stays on everything. You know, people throw their shirts out afterwards because it just exactly. sticks there. Does she mean the more mass, the greater the smell? In any event, uh, that's what she said. Someone must have asked the forensic pathologist in charge of Queensland Health at that time, her boss. He wrote to the DPP before the 1992 trial and challenged her comment and said a child's body would smell just as badly as an adult. In any event, the prosecutor ignored his comment and went with the a child's body would not smell as badly as an adult. I can't believe that. No. The chief pathologist says that's rubbish, the body would smell, the prosecutor ignores that 
and goes with the line, oh, no, there'd be no smell. Anyway. Yeah. Moving along. Moving along. Are you a fan of any witnesses, Graham? Absolutely, mate. I'm a fan of multiple witnesses of the one event. From the various statements, you can start to compose a picture of what happened if you've got multiple witnesses. And I'm also a fan where there's a paper trail or some other documentation, you know, videos, photographs, etc., supporting or corroborating the witness, okay? Which brings me to the bank teller. Mm. I believe this bank teller to be bulletproof, and I'll tell you why. We've discussed her evidence in the podcast previously, but not in the context of what the review team concluded in respect of it. I'm a huge fan of her evidence. And not just because she placed Leanne Holland alive at 11am at the Goodness Shopping Centre, about a five-minute walk from her home. I would believe her and I would accept her evidence whatever time she said Leanne Holland entered her bank because it was supported by a paper trial. True. And the paper trial made her evidence bulletproof, in my opinion. And this was another crucial aspect of the case. We've heard time and time again she had to have died by 10.15 a.m. on the Monday. There was just this limited window of opportunity. The smaller the window, the tighter it was for Graham Stafford to murder her. And if Leanne was still alive at 11 a.m., it had that knock-on effect that we talked about. Yeah. She would be alive to at least 11.30 a.m. and beyond. And it would raise awkward questions about why Herbert Holland would be saying otherwise and why she would be withdrawing money for him. For the police case to be plausible, Leanne had to have died before that time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As I said, the window of opportunity was just too small. And in the last episode, we talked about the five points that the then Commissioner Atkinson talked about and wrote about that prove conclusively that Graham Stafford was the killer. In that same letter, he also had this to say. It has determined the last credible sighting of Leanne Holland occurred at about 10.15am on the 23rd of September 1991. Ms Holland was seen walking in the direction of her home address in clothing identical to what was found on her body when she was located deceased. The location of this sighting was approximately 100 metres from her home, in a location next door to where her parental grandmother resided. Just to refresh your memory of the bank teller evidence, this is a brief summary. There was a cash withdrawal of $200 from the account of Herbert Holland, the granduncle of Leanne Holland, at the Commonwealth Bank at Goodna at 11am on the Monday. The bank teller, Audrey T, said she served a young girl Matching the description of Leanne Holland and also the clothing of Leanne Holland, she disputed serving an elderly male. It was a third-party transaction. Herbert Holland said he withdrew the money himself and he was served by a male teller. 
Someone was clearly mistaken. Both of these can't be true, right? Jamie, the evidence shows someone was clearly mistaken or lying. It literally came down to, do you believe her or do you believe him? Yeah. And then you have the paper trap, the withdrawal slip. Audrey T, when signing that document, she used the letter small a. Similar to the at sign in an email address, mm-hmm. you know, the A with a circle over it. Yep. That was Audrey. Just to help the listeners, we are posting two photographs onto the Facebook page of that withdrawal slip. And we've got to scrub some stuff out, obviously. You will see the at sign in the bottom left-hand corner corroborating her claim that she completed the transaction. I spoke to the other bank staff and they confirmed that was her signature. Mm. Her statement said, by her putting that at sign or the A on that, she confirmed that was a third-party transaction. And she'd recently been in trouble for doing a third-party transaction that was fraudulent. So she wasn't going to get caught again. As well, she put a swish line through the customer's signature to confirm that she checked the signature. Right. But it doesn't stop there. The machine, computer I guess you'd call it, generated numbers in the passbook showing the teller window that conducted that transaction. And that was the window that she signed on at that day. There's this paper trail. She's at the teller window. There's a signature to show that she did the transaction. There's a signature to show that it was a third-party transaction. There's her verbal evidence that she served a young girl fitting Leanne Holland's description, matching the clothing she was found in. She denied serving an elderly male. And then you have Herbert Holland saying, no, no, I did it, and I served by a male. And there were no males working at that branch. Yeah, it's fishier than a marina, isn't it? If anyone disputes that, please contact us and explain what it is we're missing. The Crown refused to call her at the original trial. They said she was mistaken. They said she was unreliable. The Crown said it came down to him or her. And get this, this is the best part. She had the original transaction document, which she gave the police, which they lost. Fortunately, she kept a copy. I spoke to her in 1997, five years after the trial, almost six years after the murder. She was emphatic that what she said to the police was accurate. And she also had this to tell me. The bonhomie, the temperature in the police station, cooled significantly when it dawned on the police that her evidence did not support their narrative. Interesting. And then she was interviewed again by the police review team in 2011, and she was adamant again that what she said in 1991 was factual. It comes down to, what do you believe? However, the police review concluded the original withdrawal slip could not be located, which it couldn't. It was lost before the original trial. They made no mention of the photocopy retained by Audrey T but they obviously knew of its existence. So what did the review team write? They wrote this. It was considered that the only potential line of inquiry to determine the credibility of Leanne Holland conducting a third-party transaction was with their three children. 
That is the three children of Herbert Holland. What the three children had to say has been redacted. In the light of the withdrawal slip, it doesn't matter what they said, unless they were with him on that day, and clearly they never said that. The review then laid out 10 points relating to the conclusion they reached as to why they believed Herbert Holland made the withdrawal himself. Their conclusion was careful not to refute the bank teller completely and then compare that conclusion with the conclusion reached in Mr Atkinson's letter. The probability of Leanne Holland actually conducting the transaction is reduced significantly due to the points raised above. It has determined the last credible sighting of Leanne Holland occurred at about 10.15am on the 23rd of September 1991. We have this ridiculous situation. The review concluded the bank teller evidence was not credible. This is the review team manipulating the evidence to suit their narrative, to suit the result they want. They had to avoid the domino effect. And they will tell you the CMC oversaw this investigation. There was an interstate detective overseeing this investigation. Well, I ask this. Did the CMC or the interstate detective agree with that assessment? Did they know that there was a copy of the original transaction available? It's a legitimate question. Absolutely. We'll wait. And on the maggot fiasco evidence, Jamie, I had serious doubts about the honesty and integrity of the police review. The bank teller has added fuel to those doubts. I had hoped the police were genuinely trying to identify the killer of Leanne and not just prop up the case against Graham Stafford. There were many, many sightings of Leanne Holland on that Monday. And as you've heard, the police concluded the last genuine one was 10.15am. And we could discuss all of those sightings, but there'd be no point. Some of the sightings may have been correct. Some of them may have been incorrect. Some were genuinely mistaken. And it's likely we'll never know exactly. But there are two sightings worthy of comment. And one only became known from the review. And I won't repeat the entire statement, but there are some significant takeaways from it. A school friend saw Leanne Holland in the pet store at St Ives Shopping Centre on the Monday morning. And this school friend was in company with a sister. There's no mention in the report of the sister being interviewed. They describe Leanne as wearing clothing similar to what was on her body at the time her body was found. And Leanne was with another girl the witness did not know. There's no comment about whether they asked if that was Tricia Lynch. And this girl told the review team that she asked Leanne Holland what her plans were for the rest of the day. And Leanne said that she intended to go home and watch a movie or go to the other girl's place and watch a movie. And get this, there was no comment regarding hair dye or peroxide. When these girls left the pet store, they went towards the highway, basically turned left out of the shop, and Leanne and the other girl turned right and headed in the direction of the Cecil Hotel. She could not recall if Leanne was wearing shoes, but stated it was common for Leanne to walk around barefoot. And that was significant. Although other people said the same thing, Police accepted Terry Holland's version when he said she always wore shoes, even to go to the convenience store around the corner. They believed Graham Stafford was lying 
when he said he wasn't sure if she was wearing shoes. They also determined no shoes were missing from the house, and from that, they concluded she was murdered in the house. But this witness is saying that she was frequently barefooted, right? Correct. Because Graham Stafford said he wasn't sure and no shoes were missing, they concluded she was murdered in the house. But this was the best takeaway from the interview with that girl. The review concluded that the description of Leanne's planned activities that day of watching a movie did not correspond with those known, that is, her intention to blonde her hair. Wow. Despite not raising it with the school friend in the pet shop, but the blonding of the hair is a cornerstone of the police case because it all goes back to the bathroom. Mm. I just do not believe you can make those conclusions from what was written in the report. And the other sighting was also significant. This placed Leanne Holland on Queen Street opposite the Cecil Hotel at 3.15pm on that Monday. At that time, she was wearing clothing to what her body was found in. The review commented that her location was very close to where her grandmother lived, who would have reacted if Leanne Holland was forcibly abducted in a car. Who said she was abducted forcibly? Perhaps she got in a car. Yes, and what what if the grandmother was busy or on the phone or didn't hear it? Or in the toilet or in the shower or out the back. That's just ridiculous. Because she was close to where her grandmother lived, the grandmother would have reacted if Leanne Holland was forcibly abducted in a car. The rest of the material has been redacted, so we don't know what that was. Once again, we have to rely on the Queensland police being accurate and honest. And unfortunately, that ship has sailed for me. Which brings us to the alleged sightings of Graham Stafford at the body disposal dump site. We've previously covered this in the podcast, but now we have the review report to determine how they covered it. And we've previously mentioned that there was two witnesses who saw a car up the track, one at 6.20am and the other was a woman mentioned above. The most significant part of her evidence was ignored. That is, she saw an old white ambulance go up the track towards the old brown bomb. The evidence of the second vehicle, the old white ambulance, was ignored. This was known before the original trial. They knew about a second car up there, but it was ignored Mm. because it did not fit the Crown case. The Crown case was Graham Stafford acted alone in his Gemini and the body was in the boot. Although many parts were redacted, the review spoke with four people who saw the old white ambulance in the bush with the second car. The review concluded this second car was a red Gemini. They concluded it was a red Gemini, but there was an old white ambulance with it. And this is what the review wrote. The relevance to the white panel van or ambulance, as it has been described, is no clearer as a result of the review. You accept that one car in the bush disposing of the body is Graham Stafford's, but you cannot determine the relevance of a second vehicle with Graham Stafford's car. Wow. That is just bizarre. It is. It blows my mind too, mate. So in total, there were 10 sightings of vehicles that week at the body disposal dump site. How did the review address those findings? Well, they acknowledged that there were many credible sightings of vehicles, and that was it. They concluded the offender was driving a Gemini vehicle or a vehicle with the Gemini boot mat. 
The review report was almost completely comprised of forensic evidence pointing to Graham Stafford as Leanne's killer. And as such, the review team relied heavily on the forensic review group they engaged to review the evidence. And on that point, the group said this. Finally, there is more than one witness that has stated that more than one car was observed at the body dump site. In my opinion, this is one area of the investigation that to date has not been completed as thoroughly as it may have otherwise been. The police were aware of the second vehicle, as I said, even before the trial, and they ignored it. And now they've identified and spoken to at least four people who saw the old white ambulance up the track. Now compare the above finding by the scientific review group to the comment made at the media conference in late 2012. I can confidently say there was not a scintilla of evidence that identifies any other person involved in this investigation. How do they reconcile that? Having a second vehicle and more than one offender was inconsistent with Graham Stafford being the killer and acting alone. When you cannot eliminate it, ignore it. And a couple of final points. You've heard the original entomologist arrived at the death occurring on the Tuesday. The maggots grow through three stages. The entomologist can calculate the hours it takes to grow through those three stages. Bearing in mind there are variables, like with everything. The original entomologist calculated the growth took 53 and a half hours from the time of collection of the maggots from around 5 p.m. on the Thursday which would make the time of death around 12 midday, Tuesday. The new entomologist calculated the growth took 3.5 days, which is 84 hours, which brings the time of death back to 5 a.m. on Monday, five hours before she was last seen, according to police. The review wrote this. The entomology evidence asserts that Leanne Holland was murdered on Monday, the 23rd of September, 1991. I beg to differ. You have two forensic scientists reaching differing conclusions. The jury decides who to believe. You arrive at the time of death by finding other evidence. There are more points in the review we have not touched on. The majority of them are forensic. The points we have covered to this time are the glaring anomalies in the police case that can be clearly proven to be inaccurate. And with so many anomalies, the review report loses all claims to credibility. It was a farce and could only have occurred with support from the top echelons of the police service. The Queensland Police Service have their happy ending and everyone lived happily ever after, except Leanne Holland and Graham Stafford, of course, and their respective families. I have always believed this was an incredible miscarriage of justice. In fact, it was worse than that. It is a travesty of justice. And I have seen nothing in the police review report to change my mind. And I'll leave it to the listener to decide why the Queensland Police went to such extraordinary lengths to keep the review hidden from Graham Stafford and his solicitors. Personally, I think everyone involved in that review process should hang their head in shame. I do not know what was going on in the background to this murder, Jamie, but I cannot get out of my head 
the close relationship between the superintendent of police and the convicted pedophile, and the relationship between the pedophile and one of the lead investigators on the case. Unless there is a significant development in the case, I do not think we will be broadcasting again. Just before we finally sign off, there is breaking news from the domestic violence inquiry recently held. A civilian-run integrity unit within the Triple C will be set up within 18 months to investigate police. I have a mind to write to that unit and suggest this case be the poster boy pin-up for the unit on why an independent integrity unit is required and what happens when you let police investigate police. What a journey. Thank you, Jamie. It has been a privilege and honour to work with you. And thank you, listeners. Yeah, Graham, thank you, mate. Thank you for bringing your wealth of knowledge and experience to 610 Media. I've learned a lot from you. It's been great working with you, and I sincerely hope and wish the best for you in your future. And I know you've got a new podcast you're working on as well, and uh, plus your book. So all the best with that, mate. And thanks, thanks again for a great journey. And that's it. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to it. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. And a special thanks to Yamaha Music Australia, Audio Technica Australia, Zoom Australia, Isotope and Sound Theory. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.